Chapter 15, Part 1 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Sutton. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2 by John Bagnell Burry. Chapter 15, Part 1. Chapter 15. The Syracusan Empire and the Struggle with Carthage. We have seen how the war in Greece, in its last stage, after the collapse of the Sicilian expedition, ceased to be a mere domestic struggle among Greek states and became a part of the greater struggle between Greek and Barbarian. We have now to see how the strife of Greek and Barbarian was renewed at the same moment in the West. It is indeed remarkable how these two episodes in the great conflict between Asia and Europe run parallel though separate courses in the 5th century. The victory of Himera, which beat back the Carthaginian invader from the shores of Sicily, was one in the same year which saw the repulsion of the Persian invader from the shores of Attica. After these triumphs of Hellas, both Persia and Carthage had long lain quiescent and left the Greek cities of east and west to live undisturbed, at war, or in peace among themselves. It was not till the mightiest city of eastern and the mightiest city of western Hellas came to blows and wore one another out in the conflict that the barbarian foes, discerning the propitious hour, once more made their voices heard in the Grecian world. Sicily, with an exhausted Syracuse, the Aegean, with an exhausted Athens, invited Carthage and Persia alike to make an attempt to enlarge their borders at the expense of the Greek. Section 1. Carthaginian Destruction of Salinas and Himera After she had achieved the repulse and utter confusion of Athens, it might have seemed likely that Syracuse would succeed in founding a Sicilian empire. Her first task would be to reduce Catane and Naxos, and when this was done, the other cities, including luxurious Acragas, would hardly be able to resist. This prospect was disappointed by the intervention of a foreign enemy. But though the victory of Syracuse over Athens did not lead to a Syracusan empire, as the victory of Athens over Persia had led to an Athenian empire, it was followed, as in the case of Athens, by a further advance in the development of democracy. Had Hermocrates remained in Syracuse, in possession of his old influence, a change in this direction would hardly have come to pass. But he was appointed to command the auxiliary fleet, which Syracuse sent to Sparta's help in the Aegean, and when he had gone, the democratic mood of the citizens, excited by their recent efforts, vented itself in a decree pronouncing the deposition and banishment of Hermocrates. This was the work of his political opponent Diocles, who was thoroughgoing Democrat. Diocles bore the same name as a far earlier lawgiver, belonging to the same class and age as Charondas and Zeleucus, who had drawn up the laws on which the Syracusan constitution rested. The accidental identity of name led in subsequent ages to a confusion, and we later find writers ascribing to the democratic reformer who rose into prominence now the legislation of his ancient namesake. In his popular innovations, Diocles borrowed ideas from the enemy, whom his country had just overthrown. The Athenian use of lot in the appointment of magistrates was adopted. Hitherto, the generals were also the presidents of the sovereign assembly, and had the unrestricted power of dismissing it at discretion. Diocles seems to have taken away this political function from the generals, and assigned the presidency of the assembly to the new magistrates, but with much smaller powers. The presidents, as we shall presently see, were able only to find a speaker who was out of order. They could not silence him or break up the assembly. Such was the position of the greatest Sicilian city, 
a full-blown democracy, but without her chief citizen, to whom above all others she owed the deliverance from her danger. When the island was exposed for the second time to a Carthaginian invasion, the occasion of the war was the same which had brought about the Athenian invasion, the feud between Salinas and Segesta concerning some fields on their common frontier. In both cases, the dispute of these towns was a pretext, not the deeper cause. As Athens thought that the time had come for extending her commerce in the west, so Carthage deemed that the day had dawned for asserting anew her power in Sicily. And there were those who had not let fade the memory of the humiliation endured at Hymera seventy years before, and longed to take a late revenge. Segesta, with no Athens to protect her now, ceded the disputed lands, but Salinas went on to exact further sessions, and the Elemian city appealed to Carthage. One of the two shoppets, or judges in that republic, was Hannibal, the grandson of Hamilcar, who had been slain at Hymera. The desire of vengeance long deferred dominated Hannibal, now almost an old man, and his influence persuaded the Senate to accept Segesta's offer to become a Carthaginian dependency in return for Carthaginian help. A grand expedition was fitted out, and Hannibal was named commander. Sixty warships were got ready, 1,500 transports, 100,000 foot, 4,000 horse. The fleet was not intended to take part in the offensive warfare. It was stationed at Moitia to be a protection for the Phoenician Sicily and a security in case of discomfiture. The army landed at Lilibium and marched straight to Salinas. The city had never been besieged before within the memory of its folk. Immunity had made it secure. The fortifications had been neglected. The Salinitines were engaged in building a temple of vast proportions to Apollo, or perhaps Olympian Zeus, when they were brought face to face with a sudden danger from Carthage. The house of the god was never completed. Of the pillars of the giants which were to support the massive roof, some stand in their places on the eastern hill. But the great drums and the capitals of others must be looked for some miles away in the quarries from which they were hewn, left there when the Carthaginian destroyer came. There was no time to repair adequately the walls of the Acropolis on the central hill. Hannibal surrounded it, and a breach was soon made. But the place was not in the foe's hands for nine days, owing to the stubborn resistance which the inhabitants were able to offer in the narrow streets. The Siciliot sister cities were not prompt in aid. Syracuse promised to come to the rescue and sent a force under Diocles, which arrived too late. Salinas was the first Siciliot city, which was stormed and sacked by the barbarian. She was not to be the last. The people were slaughtered without mercy. Only some women and children who took refuge in the temples were spared, not from any respect from, of the holy places, and carried into bondage. Those who escaped from the sack fled to Acragas. Thus Salinas fell, after a brief life of two centuries and a half. Hannibal had now done the work which Carthage had given him to do, but he had still to do the work which he had imposed upon himself. His real motive in undertaking the public duty of the Salinantine War was to carry out the private duty of ancestral vengeance. Against Salinas, he had no personal grudge, and there he did not carry the work of destruction further than military considerations required. The buildings on the western hill, where he had pitched his camp, suffered much, but the injuries sustained by the temples on the Acropolis and on the eastern hill are due not to Hannibal's army, but to the earthquakes of later ages. It was to be a different case in the city, which he now turned to attack. At Salinas, Hannibal was merely the general of Carthage. At Hymera, he was the grandson of Hamilcar. Hannibal designed to capture Hymera by his land force alone. And in this absence of a Carthaginian fleet, Hannibal's siege of Hymera differs from Hamilcar's. The Greeks of Sicily were now bestirring themselves. The terrible fate of one of their chief cities had aroused them to a sense of their peril. 
The naval power, which was supporting Sparta in the Aegean, had been long ago recalled, and a force of 5,000, including 3,000 Syracusans under Diocles, came to the relief of Hymera. This city had time to prepare for the danger, which she must have foreseen, but the besiegers, by means of mines, opened a breach in the wall, and although they were repelled and the defenders made a successful sally, the prospects of Hymera looked black when the fleet of 25 ships which had returned from the Aegean appeared in front of the city. Hannibal saved the situation by a stratagem. He spread abroad a report that he intended to march on Syracuse and to take it unprepared. Diocles, thoroughly deceived, decided to return home and carry off the citizens of Hymera, leaving the empty town to its fate. He induced half the population to embark in the ships, which as soon as they had set the passengers in safety at Masana were to return for the rest. Diocles and his army departed in haste, not even waiting to ask Hannibal for the dead bodies of those who had fallen in the fight outside the walls. And for this neglect, he was greatly blamed. When Hannibal saw that half his prey had escaped him, he pressed the siege more vehemently, determined to force an early entry before the ships returned. The fate of thousands, the vengeance of Hannibal, might turn on the event of a few minutes. On the third day, the vessels of safety bove in sight of the straining eyes of the Himerans. It seemed that Hannibal was to be balked of his revenge. But the gods of Canaan prevailed in that hour of suspense. Before the ships of rescue could reach the harbor, the Spanish troops of Hannibal burst through the breach, and the town was in the hands of the Avenger. On the spot where Hamilcar, according to story, had offered up his life to the gods of his country, a solemn rite was held. Three thousand men who had survived the first indiscriminate slaughter were sacrificed with torture to appease his shade. Hamera, the offending city, was swept utterly out of the world, and its place knew it no more. Having thus accomplished his duty to his country and his gods, Hannibal returned triumphant to Africa. The position which Carthage won in Sicily by this year's work and her new policy of activity there are reflected in the coinage of Segesta and Panormus. The transformation of Segesta into a Carthaginian dependency was displayed by the fact that she had ceased to coin her own money. But Carthage also showed that she intended to keep a firmer hand on her Phoenician dependencies. These cities had hitherto paid homage to Hellenic influences by adopting a coinage of Hellenic character. With Hellenic inscriptions, the coinage now comes to an end at Panormus, and is replaced by a coinage of Greek type indeed, but with a Phoenician legend. The words is, The change seems to have been made just before the invasion, and it was significant of an anti-Greek movement. But the curious thing is that Hymera, the city, which was to be one of the first victims of the new policy, heralded in this numismatic reform, abandoned her old coinage with the cock, and struck a new coinage with a seahorse on the Punic model of Panormus. Are we to suppose that Hymera, aware of the peril which menaced her, thought to avert it by a timely approach of friendship to her Phoenician neighbor, and that this coinage was part of a policy of Punicism intended to be only temporary? Syracuse, although she had sought to do something for Salinas, and had done something for Hymera, felt no call to come forward as a champion against the new aggressive policy of Carthage. It was reserved for one of her citizens to attempt, on his private responsibility, the warfare which she declined to undertake against the Phoenician foe. The exile Hermocrates returned to Sicily, enriched by the gifts of the satrap Pharnabazus. His own city refused to withdraw the sentence of banishment, for a man of his views and abilities seemed dangerous to the democratic constitution. Hermocrates then resolved to earn his recall by performing conspicuous services to the Hellenic cause in Sicily. By winning back the Greek territory which the Phoenician had taken, by carrying Greek arms into Phoenician territory itself, he had built five triremes, he had hired 1,000 mercenaries, and he was joined by 1,000 Hymeran fugitives. With these he marched to the spot where Salinas had once been, and made the place a center for a crusade against the Phoenician. 
He repaired the fortifications of the Acropolis on the central hill, and the remains of the well-built wall betray. By the capitals of columns used in the building, the circumstances of his erection, the adventure prospered. The band of Hermocrates soon increased to 6,000, and he was able to devastate the lands of Moitia and Panormus, and to drive back the forces which came out to meet him. In the same way, he ravaged the territory of Solus and the new Carthaginian Segesta. These successes of Hermocrates were of no greater significance than the actual injury dealt to the enemy. He had done what had not been done before, since the days of Dorius. He had broken into the precincts of Phoenician Sicily, and set an example to many subsequent leaders. Hermocrates was bent, above all things, on regaining his own country. Docles and his political opponents were still powerful in the city, and able to hinder the revulsion of feeling which his successes caused from having any practical effect. Accordingly, he made another attempt to soften the hearts of his fellow citizens. It was a well-calculated move. He marched to the ruins of Hymera, collected the unburied bones of the soldiers of Diocles, which Diocles had neglected, and sent them on wagons to Syracuse, himself remaining as an exile outside the Syracusan borders. He hoped to awaken the religious sentiment of the citizens in his own favor, and at the same time to turn it against his rival. The bones were received, and Diocles was banished, but Hermocrates was not recalled. Having failed to compass his restoration by persuasion, the exile resolved to compass it by force, and he was encouraged by his numerous partisans in Syracuse. He was admitted with a small band at the gate of Agrodina, and posted himself in the adjacent Agora, awaiting for the rest of his forces to arrive. But they tarried too long. The people learning that Hermocrates was in the city rushed to the marketplace. The small band was soon overcome, and Hermocrates was slain. The Syracusans in these days were inspired with an instinctive rather than well-founded dread of tyranny, and this dread was stronger than admiration for Hermocrates. Their instinct was right. Tyranny was approaching, but he was not the man. They little guessed that their future master was an obscure follower of Hermocrates, who was wounded that day in the Agora and left for dead. End of chapter 15, part 1. Chapter 15, part 2. Carthaginian Conquest of Acragas. The private warfare of Hermocrates in western Sicily had naturally provoked the wrath of the Carthaginians. Embassies passed between Carthage and Syracuse, Carthage regarding Syracuse as answerable for the acts of a Syracusan. But diplomacy was merely a matter of form. The African Republic has resolved to make all Greek Sicily subject to her sway. She made ready another great expedition, as great as if not greater than that which had been sent against Salinas, and at the same time she took the novel step of founding a colony on Sicilian soil. If Hermocrates had lived, Hymera might have been partially restored like Salinas, but the destroyers of Hymera now founded a city in the neighborhood which was to take Hymera's place. On the hill above the hot baths of the nymphs, whereof Pindar sings, the Carthaginian colonists built their town, but it was not destined to retain its Phoenician character. The Greek strangers who were admitted to dwell in it transformed it before long into a Greek city. The Thermae of Himera preserved the memories of Himera, and the people were known as Thermites or Himerians indifferently. Acragas, the city which faces Carthage, was the first object of attack to the invaders, who now came to conquer and enslave all Greek Sicily. Since the days of Theron, Acragas had held aloof from all struggles in the island, and was now at the height of her prosperity. But she was enervated by peace and luxury, and when the day of trial came, she was found wanting. How far her citizens were prepared to endure the hardships of military life may be inferred from the law, passed with a view to the present peril, that none of the men in the watchtower should have more than a mattress, two pillows, and a quilt. Such were the austerities of the men of Acragas. But at least they paid homage to the different discipline of Sparta. 
they invited Dexippus, a Spartan, who was then at Gela, to undertake the conduct of the defense. A body of Campanian mercenaries was hired, and they could rely on the assistance of their old rivals, the Syracusans, as well as of the other Greek cities, who were fully conscious that the peril of Acragas was their own, and Acragas herself behaved well. Notwithstanding her habits of ease and her old practice of holding aloof, she refused the tempting offer of the invader that she should now purchase immunity by remaining neutral. She was true to her own race. She might remain indifferent when it was a struggle between Dorian and Ionian, but it was another case when the whole of Sicilian Hellas was threatened by the Phoenician. The army of Carthage was again under the command of Hannibal, who felt that he was too old for the work and was assisted by his cousin, Himilco. They pitched their main camp on the right bank of the river Hypsus, southwest of the city, and stationed some forces in another small camp on the eastern hill beyond the river Acragas to act against Greek age coming from the east. The point of attack was the part of the western wall close to the chief western gate, but the ground, though lower here, was still difficult for a besieger, and Hannibal determined to raise an immense causeway from which the wall could be more effectively attacked. The tombs of the neighboring necropolis supplied stones for the work, but as the tomb of Theron was being broken down, it was shaken by a thunderbolt, and the seers advised that it must be spared. Then a pestilence broke out in the Carthaginian camp and carried off Hannibal himself. It seemed that the gods were wroth and demanded a victim. Himilco lit the fires of Moloch and sacrificed a boy. The causeway was then completed, but no further injury was done to the sepulchres. An army was already on its way to the relief of Acragas, 30,000 foot and 5,000 horse from Syracuse, Gela, and Camarina. When they approached the city, they were met by the forces which had been placed for this purpose on the eastern hill. A battle was fought, a victory gained, and the Greek army took possession of the lesser Carthaginian camp. Meanwhile, the routed barbarians fled for the refuge of the main camp and their flight lay along the road beneath the southern wall of the city. There was a general cry to sally forth and cut them off, but the generals refused. The moment was lost, but presently the people, yielding to an impulse which the generals could not resist, went forth from the eastern gate to meet their victorious allies. A strange seed followed. The tumultuous assembly was held outside the walls. The Acragantine commanders were accused of failing in their duty, and when they essayed to defend themselves, the fury of the people burst out, and four generals were stoned to death. The direction of the defense seems now to have been shared by Dexippus within the city and Daphneus, the commander of the Syracusan troops, without. Though the hostile camp was too strong to be attacked, the prospect looked favorable for Acragas. The Punic army, diminished though it had been by the plague, was sore bestead for lack of supplies, and it seemed certain that hunger and mutinous soldiers would soon force Himilco to raise the siege. But he learned that the provision ships were coming from Syracuse to Acragas, he sent in haste for the Carthaginian vessels at Panormus and Moitia, put out to sea with forty triremes, and intercepted the supplies. This not only saved his league, but even reversed the situation. The besieged city now began to suffer from scarcity of food, and as soon as supplies began to run short, the weak point in the position of the Acragatines was displayed. They had found it needful to rely on mercenaries, and hirelings were not likely to serve long when rations ran short. The campaign was easily induced to transfer their service from Acragas to Carthage, but this was not all. It was commonly believed that Dexippus, like most Spartans abroad, incapable of resisting a bribe, received fifteen talents from Himilco and induced the Italia and Sicilia allies to desert Acragas as a sinking ship. But whatever the conduct of Dexippus may have been, the discredit of this desertion cannot rest entirely with him. The defense which had been maintained for eight months with foreign aid was now left to the men of Acragas alone. They showed at once that they were shaped of different stuff from the men of Salinas. Overcome with despair, they resolved to save their lives and abandon their city and their gods. 
Such a resolution, taken by the people of a great city, is unique in Greek history. It did not befit the men who had rejected the overtures of Hannibal, but it was what we might expect from the men who murdered their generals. They marched forth at night, men, women, and children, without lot or hindrance from the foe. They were compelled to leave, for the barbarians to pillage, those things which made their lives happy. The old and sick could not be sent out on the long journey to Gela, the place of refuge, and were left behind. Some too remained, who chose to perish in Acragas, rather than live in another place. The army of Hamilco entered the city in the morning and sacked it, slaying all whom they found, and despoiling and burning the temples. The great house of Olympian Zeus, the largest Greek temple in Europe, was still unfinished, and the sack of Hamilco decided it should never be completed. But Acragas was not to be destroyed. Like Salinas, it was intended to be a Carthaginian city, in a Carthaginian Sicily. Hamilco made the place his winter quarters. Gela would be the next object of his attack when spring came round. End of chapter 15, part 2. Recording by Paul Sutton.